Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. In each episode, we choose a saga, offer a close reading of the text, and then judge the actions of the characters at the Saga Thing. Or at least that's the theory, you know. Uh, in, in practice, we seem to be spending a lot more time on one saga, Gretchen's Saga. Well, yeah, we sort of knew this was going to happen. Uh, mm-hmm. There are a handful of sagas that we expect to spend a while dealing with. And we knew going in that this was going to be a monster. And it is. Uh, and, and that's before you had to go off gallivanting around the far reaches of uh, Canada and then <laughs> come home and get your gallbladder yanked out right before recording the conclusion that we we're trying to do. I, I prefer to think of it as a partial disemboweling. <laughs> it's so much cooler that way. But uh, everything's okay now, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Thank you for all the well-wishers out there. I'm doing fine. Um, it was a little bit of an emergency, but I was in the hands of a skilled team of knife-wielding madmen, and they took very good care of me. <laughs> That's good. Uh, so I have a new motto. My new motto is slightly less guts, slightly greater glory. That's a terrible motto. I mean, the, the slightly <laughs> is what ruins it for me. So could you maybe do something like uh, less guts, greater glory? <laughs> Too late. I've already made the t-shirts. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, now, uh, you've also been busy in this hiatus, haven't you? Uh, yeah, you know, I tinkered around. Had a bit of my own guts ripped out here and there. In other words, you uh, completed your tenure portfolio and submitted it. Yeah, that's what I did. Yeah. Well, and, you know, it was fun actually reflecting on the last five years and, mm-hmm. and what the podcast is and all that kind of stuff in the, in the narratives. But uh, I'm very happy not to be stressing over that document anymore. It's just too much pressure. Well, good luck to you. You'll be fine. Uh, I hope so. Thanks a lot. Um, <laughs> it's uh, going to be another nine months of waiting to find out how it went. So, uh, I'm telling you I- it went fine. Yeah. Anyway, enough of this idle banter. Let's get started. Uh, yes, please. Uh, so this is our third episode on Gretter's Saga. So if you're new to Saga Thing, well, first of all, thanks for listening. Second of all, stop listening immediately and go find episodes one and two of Gretter and start with those. because we're kind of starting in Medias Reis here. Uh, or stop listening because no one in their right mind wants to listen to a podcast that uses terms like in medias race. And I guess, except for people like us, we're exactly that kind of weird. Oh, let me have my fun. Uh, okay. So we're picking things up in the middle of the action. Is that better? That's a little bit better. Um, it'd be even better if we explained which action. There's just so much going on in this saga. Where did we stop? Okay. So we left Gretter comparing arms with his brother Thorstein Drummond while awaiting favorable seas for a return to Iceland. Now, to be fair, he was kind of kicked out of Norway for burning the sons of Thorer of Gard, and then failing to complete an ordeal by fire to clear his name. So, uh, things mm-hmm. really began to sour for Grettir uh, after that glam episode. Or glam. Well, and that's fair, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. So, we're picking up with the 47th chapter of the saga, when Grettir returns home to discover that his father is dead, his brother Atli was murdered by Thorbjorn Oxenmite, and that he himself has been outlawed for the death of Thor of Garth's sons. It's grim news all around, and things are about to get messy. They were kind of already messy. Yeah, that's a good point. Things are about to get much messier. <laughs> all right. Uh, hit the imaginary button and let's get started. After a short trip to Norway in which Gretter managed to get himself outlawed from the country. He returns home to Iceland, only to find that he's been outlawed for the same crime. With nowhere to go, Gretter is forced to wander the countryside, lurking in caves and stealing his daily bread. Will Iceland forgive him his trespasses, or will they hunt him down like a dog and make him pay for these crimes? 
as tension builds between true justice and the law. Greta is caught helplessly in the middle. Along the way, you'll run into a few familiar faces like Snorri Gothi, Goodman the Powerful, Bjorn, the champion of the Hitterall people, and his nemesis Thord Kolbinson. Greta the Outlaw's amazing adventures span 19 years. With so much time to kill, Greta racks up quite the body count. But it's not all fun and games for our hero. Tainted by Glaum's curse, Gretir spends many lonely nights lying awake in fear of the spirits that haunt him. This fear drives him to seek companions who often have nefarious intentions. With no one to trust, Gretir flees to the island of Drangi with his brother Elugi. There, the two of them will try to live out their days, if boredom, cold, and a bit of black magic don't get the better of them first. This episode has its fair share of bloody battles, hair-raising chases and troll fights. But it's not all wrestling and gore. You'll laugh when Gretter delivers the first wedgie in Western literature, cringe when his manhood is revealed, and cry when Thorbjorn Hook and his men finally close in on our weakened hero. All this and more. In the thrilling conclusion to Gretir Saga, chapters 47 to 84. We're going to get through all that in one episode. Well, we'll certainly give it the old college try. Um, in my experience, that means ignoring everything the professor says and then waiting to the last minute to panic. <laughs> the results are usually pretty lackluster. <laughs> I think that's a little bit too real and actually not terribly far well, let's, off. Uh, let's try to preserve the illusion of competence. Okay, I think we will. Um, uh, let's not forget also, John, that uh, we we have a saga brief coming on Gretchen's relationship to Beowulf coming up as well. I don't think we're really going to have and, time. And for- there's, we've got a judgment episode on Gretchen coming as well. Is that it? Are you done? I really <laughs> hope everyone who listens to this is enjoying Gretchen as much as we do because it just seems to go on forever. Well, you know, given that we're close to three hours in with Gretchen, I, I think we can safely assume we've scared off all the faint-hearted Gretchen haters. Uh, true enough. So, uh, as we said, we anticipate tackling one of these monster-sized sagas a year, usually during the summer. Uh, mm-hmm. And after this, personally, I'm looking forward to a couple of bite-sized texts. Yes, Maybe definitely. a palate-cleansing thotter or something. <laughs> all right, well, let's get the show on the road, shall we? All right, all right, all right. Gretter's Revenge. In Weatherfjord, Odin's weapons stormed the bear-hugging giant's adversary. The ox mustered its full force. Now for Atli's slaying, long unavenged after he slumped to the fair earth, he is repaid in kind. So, Gretter finds himself on the shore at Borgerfjord as a full outlaw, which uh, which means there's a price on his head and a severe penalty for anyone who helps him. He wants to get to his mother's house, but he also knows that his sentence of outlawry means he has to travel incognito. So he puts on a hooded cloak, steals a horse named Saddlehead from a nearby farm, and rides off. Now, the problem with this plan is that the horse's owner is a lively farmer named Svein. Mm-hmm. And he's not eager to lose his favorite horse right now, or any time, actually. So so he jumps on another horse and chases after Gretir. Right. 
it would be great to get a real good chase on horseback going here. You can never get enough horse chases. Imagine this. I'm, I'm more partial to car chases myself. Well, you know, you don't get too many of those in the sagas. <laughs> no. Uh, anyway, this is one of those times when we get to see Greta's trickster nature. He stops people as he passes them, and he teaches them riddles in verse about himself, explicitly so that they can pass those riddles on to Sven, who's riding along in his wake but can't catch up because Greta's got the better horse. Uh, apparently much better. I mean, if he's mm-hmm. stopping to teach riddles to people. <laughs> how well, people are quick studies. I guess they are. Anyway, uh, Svein's a poet himself, so he's able to work out the verses pretty quickly. And by the time he catches up with Greta at the farm of Grim Thorolson, uh, he's pretty sure he knows who's taken his horse. And mm-hmm. he's not looking forward to confronting Greta, which is smart. But he comes on <laughs> anyway. And when he sees uh, his horse Saddlehead, which is an excellent name for a horse. It is. Any of you with uh, young horses looking for names, Saddlehead is right there, there you for you. Anyway, Saddlehead is grazing next to Grimm's house, and he shouts out just half of a poem. Who's been riding my mare? What will I earn for the favor? Who has seen a greater thief? What has the cow wearer staked? Now, now that's a challenge. Not so mm. much because of the questions as because of the half verse. Right. right. And Greta, of course, can't resist, and so he finishes the poem. I rode the mare to Grimm's. He's more a man than a crofter. I have little favor to pay you, but let us settle in friendship. Oh, so nice. Yeah. Uh, Now, Sven is pleased by Greta's response, and the two men spend the evening exchanging humorous verses about their day's riding, which they later call the Saddlehead Verses. (laughs) Oh, the laughs they had. Well, right. Uh, Sven considers himself well paid for the use of his horse by these poems, and he returns home in the morning with both horses. Now, this isn't that element uh, of Greta's personality that critics find so difficult. He sort of randomly has these playful moods, and and he can be completely charming in those moments. Mm-hmm. And I, I also love uh, the idea here that good poems are a kind of currency for these men. Yeah, we see that kind of transaction elsewhere in the sagas, although poems aren't always considered reasonable forms of payment. Right. Uh, but for now, all's well, and he's successfully escaped the gaze of any of Thor of Guard's spies, so he's able to reach his mother's house without attracting attention. Well, apart from the attention he's already attracted by stealing Sven's horse. And talking to all those people. <laughs> right. I, not to mention all the people that met him at the uh, the shore and said, hey, did you know you're an outlaw? <laughs> anyway. Welcome. Get it away. Seemed, it seemed to work out okay. And and Sven's willing to uh, keep Gretchen's secret for now. Right, which means Greta can visit his mom in peace. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this reunion with Mama Astis shows another side of Greta. It's actually a pretty heartbreaking moment. Greta sneaks into the house and wakes her up, and she kisses his cheek. Mm-hmm. It's like a coffee commercial. Yeah, There's a real tenderness to their relationship, and to a certain extent, she becomes that emotional anchor that we saw with Oud Vestin's daughter in Gisli. Eh, kind of. I mean, you just love adding your own subtext to these stories, don't you? It's, I love revealing is, subtext. I guess. It's just not as developed as, as I would like. I mean, Gre- Greta's not planning on just spending time catching up with his mom here. Uh, no one knows that he's home except for all those people he talked to. And he immediately takes advantage of that by riding out of out to the farm. Uh, he immediately takes advantage of that by riding out to the farm of Thorbjorn Oxenmite, uh, who is his brother's killer. Mm-hmm. He, he catches Thorbjorn and his teenage son Arnor out in their fields. And in a short and very disappointing fight, he kills them both. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's really kind of anticlimactic end to uh, to what should be a more prolonged and tension-filled feud, I think. Uh, the saga author is really missing a great opportunity here. What's wrong with a killing being short and sweet for a change? Because Gretchen has to have someone to fight with. Oh. 
Anyway, <laughs> wait, Ritter's very that? careful to obey the rules of revenge killing. Oh. Right? Even though it means blowing his cover, he rides to a nearby farm and announces the killings and his responsibility. Mm-hmm. So he can't be accused of murder or secret killing, but he also can't stay with his mother now that everyone knows he's back. Right, and and his brother-in-law, Gamli, advises him to make a quick escape. So Greta rides off to Laxdal, and uh, there he stays with Thorstein Kugeson for a while. Right, now there's an interesting digression in the saga here. Uh, Greta loses a spear during the battle, and the saga writer says that it wasn't found until near the end of Sterla Thorthison's life. Oh, that's right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, now for people who don't know the later period, uh, Sterla Thorthison's actually pretty important, and he's the nephew of... Snorri Sturluson. The infamous Snorri Sturluson. Of course. Now, Sturl is a pretty interesting guy in his own right. He was a saga writer who focused on the Samtima saga, uh, the contemporary sagas written in the 13th century. He was also a law speaker for a while after Iceland's capitulation to Norway in 1262, mm-hmm. and then he died in 1284. So the saga author's telling us that Grettir's spear was found more than 250 years after this fight. Right. Now... A skeptical man might point out how unlikely it is that that was the same spear that was found. That's true if you're being too literal, but I think it's worth pointing out that Sterla Thorthorson is thought to have composed the biography of Gretcher the Outlaw around 1280. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a significant connection between this saga and Sterla Thorthorson. His biography is mm-hmm. like an artifact of sorts, uh, kind of like the spearhead, preserving Gretcher's legend. And mm-hmm. that was a direct influence on the author of Gretcher's saga. So... That's pretty fascinating to me. Uh, but we won't concern ourselves with that because no. right now Greta's looking for a hideout. And as it happens, he seeks refuge with one of Sterla Thorthison's most famous ancestors, the illustrious Snorri Gothi. Oh, good for you. You got a thingman mentioned. <laughs> little hand for Snorri. Yeah. But let's be clear. Snorri isn't the kind of guy to put his neck out for someone else. And he doesn't want much to do with Greta. So he refuses to take him in. Although he does offer to speak on Greta's behalf at the All Thing, which is nice. Well, that's something. I mean, Snorri's a pretty powerful guy by this time, so his help is no small matter. Mm-hmm. But Greta has to move on. He spends a winter with his friend Thorgils Arison, and he behaves himself pretty well while he's there. He nearly kills one of Thorgils' other house guests, but he restrains himself. Good for him. And Thorgils actually gains prestige for managing to keep Greta from killing anyone for an entire winter. <laughs> that is quite a feat. It says a lot about Greta at this point. <laughs> Do you get the sense uh, when you're reading this uh, that the author sometimes doesn't know why these shorter episodes are in the saga? I mean, <laughs> we're skipping quite a few of these kinds of moments, but... Yeah, I, but you get... I mean, Greta's got to pass the time somehow, right? I mean, this saga is going to cover almost 20 years of Outlawry. I guess so, but the, I think the writing's pretty weak in this section. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, there's far more potential in building the tension between Gretchen and a fixed rival over time, uh, kind of like they did with Gisli and Eolf. But oh, not well, here. I mean, true, but Greta will get his own Aelf soon enough. Not really, but I, I guess I see what you mean. He does have mm-hmm. a rival eventually, but it's not terribly impressive. Um, but getting back to the story. In the spring, a lawsuit is brought at the All Thing against Gretir's family for the death of Thorbjorn Oxenmite. But Gretir's friends decide to try and help them. So Thorgil's going to meet with Skafti, the law speaker, who mm-hmm. in turn is going to invalidate the case against Gretir's family because Gretir as an outlaw, is no longer his family's responsibility. Well, mm-hmm. in fact, Thorbjorn's family ends up having to pay Gretchen's mother for Otley's death instead. It's quite a reversal. Yes, uh, and Snorri Gothi, who's always working an angle, teams up with Skofti to make a proposal. Mm-hmm. Gretchen's family will forego the compensation payment for Otley if their enemies will agree to void the outlawry judgment against Gretchen. 
And that's a pretty good deal for Gretcher's family, really, mm-hmm. since they, they came to the All Thing not expecting to win compensation for Otley anyway. Right. That's a good point. Uh, and Snorri thinks it would be a good deal for everyone, since, as he says, I expect Gretter to inflict a lot of suffering for as long as he's an outlaw. Yeah, but uh, Thorir from Guard, whose sons were killed in that fire, mm-hmm. he's going to flatly refuse to avoid the outlawry against Gretir. So there's no deal struck here. And, mm-hmm. and just to add insult to injury, Thorir then teams up with Thorbjorn Oxenmite's brother Thorod Halfpoem to offer a massive reward. They increase the bounty on Gretir. So anyone who so, kills him is going to be quite wealthy. That didn't work out so well then? No, no, it did not. You know, mm-hmm. I expected better from Snorri, but uh, but honestly, we can't blame him here. Thorir is not going to forgive Gretir anytime soon for the death of his sons. And so as time passes, we're going to see the truth of Snorri's prediction that many men will pay the price for Gretir's ongoing outlawry. So now Gretir's back to living rough. He's uh, stealing in order to survive. And he eventually gets careless and spends several nights sleeping in the same sheep pen. And that gives the local farmers a chance to gather together and jump on him while he's sleeping. And although it takes ten men to hold him, he does get himself tied up and he's held until the local lord returns from the all thing. Now, that local lord is Vermund the Slender. Mm-hmm. Everybody remember Vermund? Um, mm-hmm. It's mentioned that he is uh, the brother of a certain killer Stur, who uh, I believe is one of my thingmen. Ah, good for you. You got one too. Yeah, that hardly counts. Just a mention. Now, fortunately for Gretir, Vermund's wife, Thorbjorg the Stout, does everybody remember Thorbjorg the Stout? Quite a lady. She arrives first and takes charge of the situation, which is kind of what she does. Right. Thorbjorg's kind of awesome. Uh, yeah. She squats next to Gretir and asks why he's causing trouble with <laughs> her thing. Of course she would. <laughs> and Gretir, being Gretir, says, well, you can't provide for everything. I had to be somewhere. Now, I think it's really telling, and it's, I'm glad you mentioned this, that she calls uh, all these people her thingmen. Mm-hmm. Now, we know from Erbiga Saga that Vermund isn't the most imposing guy around, but this seems to have more to do with Thorbjorg's firmness of character than a slight to Vermund's authority. Uh, she's just recognized as having an equal share in the authority of the Gotharth. Right. Now, Iceland's laws forbade women from holding chieftaincies, but every Gotharth was more or less left to its own devices when it came to how the power was shared out and mm-hmm. managed. In Problemkill Saga and Vatnsdala, we saw brothers who shared the Gothorth amongst themselves. And here we see a kind of husband and wife team of chieftains. Sure. Uh, Vermund is the official title holder, but it's clear that Thorbjorg's word is just as much law as his because on her authority, the, the farmers untie Gretir. And, be, and I also yeah. think it's interesting that the, the saga author has clearly read Erbiga Saga and is just playing on Vermund's weakness. Yes, absolutely. And in this moment, we get a rare glimpse into a whole different world of relationships and power structures when Vermin returns home and demands to know why Thorbjorg freed Gretir. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons she gives for letting him go is that Gretir's kinswoman Hrefna would not expect me to allow him to be killed. Yeah. So suddenly, and for just a second, we can see a web of relationships and communications among the women of Iceland. I like it. It's clear that this structure parallels that of men in terms of interconnected social obligations. And it's also clear that women expected other women to be able and willing to assert their power on one another's behalf. Now, this is the sort of thing you have to be looking for to find in the sagas, and John's mm-hmm. quite good at that. Uh, but for now, uh, <laughs> Gretir's allowed to leave, and he's running out of places to go. 
So he returns to Thorstein Kugeson for a while, but Thorstein mm-hmm. expects hard work out of his household. And I think we know already that that's really not Grettir's cup of mead. So, <laughs> <laughs> so the next summer he heads off again, looking for a place where he can lay about. Yeah. Now there's going to be a lot of this in this episode. Uh, Grettir's an outlaw for 19 plus years. And a lot of that time he spends wandering around Iceland, seemingly at random. It's actually not totally at random. He's moving around so as to avoid taxing any one region's patience for too long. But the result is a lot of kind of disorienting movement. Mm-hmm. And we'll be skipping some of the episodes along the way. But I really recommend reading this whole thing to get the full effect of just how long Greta spends on the run. It's pretty epic. It is. And I also think that he uh, he moves around because the author wants to hit all these different parts of Iceland so that he can tap into the different stories um, mm-hmm. and legends from those those regions. Um, this also, though, all this moving around is I, I start to run into some trouble with the saga. I mean, mm-hmm. each episode is kind of exciting, and some of them are actually very funny, but a lot of them come and go without the story moving forward significantly. I mean, there's a certain amount of redundancy in what we're being told over and over here. Oh, I don't know if that's fair. It's um, fair. This saga is a character portrait. What we're getting over the course of its length is a sense of the complexity of Greta himself and of the world that he has so much trouble negotiating. Well, don't don't misunderstand me. There's good stuff here. I'm not denying that. But, but I'm not the only one to complain about the lack of direction in this saga. And this part, more than any, lacks focus. Hmm. That's a good complaint. Hmm, yeah, no, it is. Uh, fair enough. Well, yeah. uh, but while we've been talking, Greta has wandered back and forth, and now he's living rough in Kjol, which is a low-population region in the interior of the island. He's surviving at this point by robbing travelers who take the paths across the open ground there. Right, and we should be clear that Greta's not always the nicest or most noble robber on the road. I mean, he's no mm. Robin of Loxley. <laughs> he pretty much takes what he wants when he wants it, often with very little regard for the victim. Um, but it's not always an easy venture. There is one point, and it's a, a fun episode, where he attempts to rob the horse from a traveler named Halmund of uh, Baljokl. Mm. But uh, but Halmund, who uses the pseudonym of Loft, just tears the reins back out of Greta's strong hands and rides away. Right now, and and Gritter's pretty impressed by that because he thinks of himself as being a fairly strong guy. Yeah, but he does manage to rob plenty of other travelers. Enough mm-hmm. of them that Scoffy Lawspeaker finally has to kind of take him aside and ask him to leave the area. Yeah, it's a tough position to be in. I mean, remember, mm-hmm. Scotty doesn't think that the outlawry of Greta was handled honorably, but as lawspeaker, he also can't flout the law no matter how misapplied it is. And Gretter's really becoming a problem in the region. Yeah, yeah, but that means Gretter's got to find yet another place to live. Right. Gretter, the outlaw. I did not ride to face the tenders of swords that strike terror into shields. I tread a solitary path. A life of tribulation is shaped for me. So, Grettir's back on the run. Yeah, uh, and now he moves into a fairly wild area in the north. He's still struggling with that fear of the dark uh, that he gained from, or gained, that he suffered in his fight with Glom. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that means he hates being alone. But his status as an outlaw stands between him and any real friendships. Real friendships, you said? Yeah, uh, Gretter's increasingly going to be targeted by other outlaws who come to him as false friends, usually because they're hoping to win their freedom by killing the dangerous outlaw. 
Now, we, we did talk about this on previous episodes, mm-hmm. that one way for an outlaw to redeem himself to society is to collect bounties on other outlaws. That's actually a pretty smart law in that it discourages outlaws from ganging up on people. Right. Um, it's also going to make Grettir's existence a little bit more difficult. He has to weigh up anyone who wants to spend time with him against the likelihood that his new friend may be out for the bounty on his head. Uh, but on the other hand, he really hates being alone. It's quite a conundrum. Right. And so two outlaws in a row, a grim and Thorer Redbeard are going to make attempts on Gretter's life in the next year. Mm. Grimm is kind of a simple lad, and Gretter spots him right away. Yeah, so Grimm doesn't last long, does he? No, he does not. Uh, Gretter kills him more or less straight off. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thorer Redbeard is actually much more clever. He's actually been hired by Thorer of Garth to kill Gretter. Mm-hmm. He spends two entire years living with Gretter, and acting as Gretter's servant. Oh, that seems like a really long time. But Gretter really loves uh, having someone to do the work for him. Uh, he hates doing that kind of stuff. Yeah, the saga writer says, Gretter had never led such a comfortable life. <laughs> Basically has a slave. Right. But he's still very careful uh, not to turn his back on Redbeard. Well, that's just good thinking. I mean, anyone who's that eager to make another outlaw's life, especially Gretter's, that cozy, uh, that person's definitely up to something. No, that's true. Um, And Gretter's cynical enough about human nature that he's not likely to be caught unawares. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, he's still got this problem of being afraid of the dark. So he likes having the company around so that he's not alone at night. Yeah, Glom's curse is really starting to take its toll. He's finding himself cuddling with a guy named Thor Redbeard. Yep. (laughs) Uh, but Redbeard eventually gets bored of waiting for his chance. So when a storm comes in one night, he stages an accident by smashing the boat that they share and casting their fishing nets out into the water. And since Redbeard's apparently already established that he can't swim, Gretter's got to drop his weapons and dive in to grab the nets. It's a little suspicious, but not really a bad plan. And no. it, it almost works. Uh, when when Gretter wades up out of the water... Redbeard grabs Gretter's sword and leaps at him, and Gretter's only just barely able to avoid the blow by diving mm-hmm. backward into the water. Yeah, the only flaw in Redbeard's plan is that Gretter is a good swimmer, mm-hmm. and he's pretty good at holding his breath, too. Right, so while Redbeard's watching the water, Gretter's able to swim around the sandbank and then sneak up on Redbeard from behind. Redbeard's mm-hmm. pretty dumb. <laughs> <laughs> he grabs Redbeard, throws him to the ground, then snatches back the sword and chops Redbeard's head off. And after this, Gretchen's learned his lesson. He's going to refuse to take in any more outlaws, even though he's still afraid of being alone. It's a nice little bit of fighting, but the fact that Gretter's nearly killed with his own sword is also an interesting bit of foreshadowing. Yeah. We'll, uh, we'll see something later on that calls back to this. Uh, Thor of Garth is now furious. He's obviously waited two years for a report back from Redbeard. <laughs> right. Uh, and he now he rides to the moors with a band of 80 men to try and just eradicate Gretter. Mm-hmm. Uh, they managed to surround yeah. him. 80 men, that seems like overkill here. Well, actually, it's not enough kill. <laughs> uh, Gritter chooses a narrow pass to defend, and he's able to fight off the men attacking him from the front. But no one gets around and attacks him from behind. Mm. And that's actually a little odd, because Thorir did send a bunch of men around to attack from behind. But after a while, he realizes that the ambushers are all getting killed and wounded without ever reaching Gretter. And he panics at the thought that Gretir might be protected by some kind of black magic. You know, and the funny part about this scene is that Gretir and Thor are both confused about what's happening. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so when the surviving attackers run off in fright, uh, Gretir goes to see what's been happening. And that's where he finds a large man who's badly wounded guarding his rear. Uh, while, and there's a, like a huge pile of corpses all around him. Right. It's a cool scene. Now, the huge, the huge man is Hallmund. 
It's the guy from the Moors who proved he was stronger than Gritter by snatching the reins of his horse back during that attempted robbery. Yep. And Hallmund is turning out to be the best friend Gretter's ever had. Yeah. The two of them have killed 18 men. 12 for Hallmund, 6 for Gretter. And wounded a bunch of the others. So that Thor or Garth is humiliated when word gets out of his failure. He took 80 men to kill one and failed. Yeah. Uh, Gretter and Hallmund both survived their injuries, of course. And and Gretter composes a poem in celebration of Hallmund's friendship. The battle-keen sword crawled like a snake over tracks of wounds when the stormy weather rained weapons in Hrutafjord. Those staunch men from Kelda had the chance to hold my wake, but brave Hallmund from the cave helped me escape unscathed. That's so nice. See, he can be polite. He can be friendly. Yeah. Gretter spends the entire summer with Hallmund and Hallmund's daughter in their cave dwelling, but he eventually decides to visit his relatives in Breithefjord. Mm-hmm. But no one is strong enough to protect him from his growing enemies, and so Gretter has to move on again to Murar. Now, the author's missing an opportunity here. I mean, Hallman has a nice daughter. How about, like, a little bit of love for Gretter? You know? But <laughs> no, no. He's reporting history. <laughs> None of that. Yeah, sure. Sure he is. <laughs> no love for our poor outlaw. Instead, the author's going to rush headlong into another one of those episodes where he tries linking Gretter to the action of other sagas. And that's oh, really the primary objective here. Uh, but I know you're pleased with this one because the story of yes, Gretter meeting up with Bjorn Arndersen better known as Bjorn, champion of the Hitadar people. Yes, yes. So, Thingman name drop for you. Ding! Well, you know, this link actually makes sense. We learned in Bjorn... And it's <laughs> this one, of the one better, does. This one does, and it's one of the better written ones. We learned in Bjorn's saga that Bjorn has a weakness for harboring outlaws, in part because he's kind of treated like an outlaw himself. And Grettir is the uber-outlaw of all Iceland. So it's mm-hmm. only a matter of time before these two met. Well, I mean, their relationship isn't as chummy as all that. Right? Bjorn offers to let Gretter stay in a cave on a nearby mountain, as long as Gretter only victimizes people who aren't under Bjorn's protection. Yeah, well, so what's wrong with that? Bjorn's looking out for his own. Well, it feels a little bit like a mobster's protection no, racket. No, it doesn't. Uh, nice farm you got there. It'd be a shame if Gretter happened to it. Maybe uh, <laughs> maybe you'd like to be protected from him. You're making it sound bad. I don't think that's I know a guy who knows a guy. I could make sure Greta doesn't stop by your place. <laughs> all right. All right. Are you done? Now, yeah. If, if you I'm actually, done. If you paid attention when we did Bjorn Saga, you'd know that Bjorn's feuding with Thord Kolbinson. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of farms nearby under Thord's protection, and these are the ones that Greta is allowed to rob. It right. all fits rather nicely with the narrative of Bjorn Saga, actually, if you pay attention. Okay. okay. Uh, so my favorite part of this section is that the author of Greta's Saga has to one-up the Bjorn Saga author. Oh, yeah, you're talking about the, the games, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so the saga author tells us, Gretir stayed with Bjorn, and they challenged each other at various feats. The saga of Bjorn tells us that they were a match for each other, but most people believe that Gretir was the strongest man to have lived in Iceland in his generation. Right. Now, I want to be clear, that's a quote. Yes. The, the, Gretir's saga says the saga of Bjorn tells us they were a match for each other, but most people believe that Gretir was better. That borders on authorial invention. Mm-hmm. Gretter's extra super strong, right? even more than other books say. 
Well, there is a, a certain fan fiction vibe to that line. In fact, there's a lot of fan fiction vibes throughout Gretchen's saga. It's true. Uh, but but meanwhile, a, a man named Gisli Thorstensen, uh, not to be confused with the outlaw Gisli Thorstensen, has been running around boasting to Bjorn's enemy, uh, Thord Kolbinson, that he, Gisli, would make short work of Gretchen if only he had the chance. Now, right, now Thord is perfectly willing to egg Gisli on. <laughs> of what course does he have he to is. lose? And when Gretchen steals four sheep and roughs up some local farmers... Gisli rides out to confront him. Well, <laughs> although you think it sounds so immediate, he waits a couple months before doing anything. Well, I mean, do you think he's hoping that Greta has moved on by then? Or I think is he so. really such a fool that he's planning to attack Greta? Well, I think he's a fool anyway, but the fact that he only brings <laughs> two men with him suggests that he's quite confident in his abilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, the three of them ride along the path by Gretcher's lair, uh, shields shining in the sun, bright cloaks over their shoulders. It's quite an impressive sight. Right. This is really one of those great Gretter moments. Mm-hmm. Gretter's watching these guys and we're told he felt he really would need to take some of their belongings off of them. And he was curious to meet such braggarts. Mm. Then he runs down the slope, grabs the bag of clothing that Gisley's <laughs> carrying behind him and says, I'll have this. I often stoop to trifles. Now, Gisley is going to put up a brave front here, but that's all it is. He calls out his friends to attack, uh, but then he stays behind them. He's he's really a kind of a coward. His friends aren't, though. No, no. Uh, so, of course, Greta kills them both uh, in a short fight. <laughs> and then he beats the tar out of Gisli until he flees. I'll never understand how these cowardly guys manage to surround themselves with brave warriors. You think of Eolf the Grey in Gisli's saga. Or, or um, Thor, uh, Thord Kolbinson in Bjorn's saga. Or even, right, I think, uh, right. Bjorn the Bear Stalker from our last episode of Gretchen's saga. They're, mm-hmm. they're all braggarts with very little physical prowess to back up their words. Right, exactly. So it also points to one of the basic parameters for socially approved masculinity in the sagas, right? We're never really asked to feel affinity for a cowardly man that I can think of. Mm. Right? Cowardly behavior is a tip-off that you're probably looking at the villain of the story. True, but it's not as if all villains are cowardly. Uh, not at all. But the Venn diagram of saga villains and saga cowards has some significant overlap. That's all I'm saying. Fair enough. Uh, and anyway, uh, Gretter's not done with Gisli yet. No, no. Uh, Gretter's going to follow him, and, and Gisli keeps throwing off weapons and armor and, for some reason, his clothes to delay <laughs> Gretter, who is happy strolling along behind him, picking up anything Gisli drops. I think that there's a good opportunity for some humor in the, the, the Gretter saga movie here. Well, there's actually, this is actually, a, a, there's a folktale about this. Is that right? Uh, yeah, a, a girl who has to, like, throw off her, her clothing piece by piece to, like, delay a wolf that's chasing her. Anyway, this is going to continue until Gisli's exhausted and stripped straight down to his underwear. Uh, now, finally, uh, <laughs> Gretter sort of spares us all by rushing at uh, Gisli before he loses his underwear and says, Are you Gisli who wanted to meet Gretter as Munderson? I must give you something to remember me by. Then he grabs a branch pulls Gisli's underclothes up over his head and beats him with the stick until he flays the skin from his ribs and back. That's great. Is this the first uh, mention of a wedgie in in all of Western <laughs> literature? It may well be. It couldn't happen to a nicer guy. I mean, I, I've said before, I'm a little ambivalent about Gretir as a person, but Gisli really deserves this beating, and this is so nicely done. Well, uh, <laughs> Gisli eventually manages to crawl away, and he makes sure never to cross Gretter's path again. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gretter, meanwhile, keeps all the clothes and weapons that Gisli threw off. And, of course, he composes a verse about Gisli. Of, of course he does. The horse that nibbles with his teeth lightly when it ought to bite, saves <laughs> its breath until the end, then runs off 
from the other horse. From me that day on Murar, interfering Gizli ran farting like a cart horse, <laughs> stripped of fame and honor. <laughs> and pants, obviously. <laughs> obviously. Oh, that's so, a great point. Uh, <laughs> so Greta spends a couple of years eking out a living in Bjorn's lands, uh, mostly by stealing from nearby farmers. But eventually, Thord decides to mount another attack on Gretter, and this time he sends his son, Arnor the Earl's Poet, with over 20 men to attack Gretter. There's another pitched battle, this time with Gretter defending himself on a spit of land by a river, and he manages to kill eight men and badly hurt two more before Arnor calls off the attack. Now, we're skipping some details here, but this fight is going to get back to your point, I think, from the last episode. Does it? You have to refresh my memory. It's been a while. Yeah, well, you were talking... It's been a while, yeah. Uh, No, you were talking last time about how Greater seems to be flying by the seat of his pants most of the time. uh, And Mm -hmm. I disagreed with you. But this is another one of those scenes where I guess you could say the author works to convey a sense of Greter's desperation. Oh, right, yeah. No, he says something like, Greter knew the options were to run away or attack and hold back nothing. Now, I still tend to read it as evidence of uh, Gretcher's ability to plan in a crisis and to act. Um, He's chosen a great defensive position, and he's weighing his choices at this point in the battle. Honestly, you'd think he'd at least consider diving into the river that's right behind him. That's not really in keeping with uh, Gretcher's style. Uh, And besides, his plan works. But uh, the the deaths of eight men uh, lead to a general uproar in the neighborhood, you know? Understandably. So Gretcher's got to hit the road again. Right. And by now, it's getting harder for Greta to find places to stay. He's kind of made the rounds. (laughs) Uh, He visits all of his allies and relatives in turn again, but no one wants the responsibility of shielding him. He's stealing sheep to survive, and at one point he kills a young lamb and is then kept up for days by its mother bleeding outside his door. Uh, it's, it's, It's getting pretty desperate. Other than that sheep, he's living all alone. Yeah. Now, he does find a kind of secret valley, which he calls uh, Thorstal, after a giant named Thorir that he claims lives there. Uh, Mm. The valley has fat lambs, a river teeming with fish, uh, and brushwood in abundance for lighting fires. It's a good place. Yeah, it's a rare bit of good luck for Gretter, and he makes the most of it, passing a very comfortable winter in Thorstal. But meanwhile, another outlaw named Grimm moves into Gretter's old caves. And this outlaw is going to be harassed by Gretcher's friend, Halmund, who doesn't want anyone else to take Gretcher's spot. Now, unfortunately, Grimm ends up sticking an axe in Halmund. So Gretcher's strongest friend is now dead, and it's getting lonelier and lonelier for Gretcher in Iceland. But of course, Gretcher doesn't actually know yet about Halmund's death. No, true enough. And once again, Gretcher's enemies are closing in behind him. Thor of Garth and a large party of men ride by Gretcher's new home, and Gretter only escapes detection by throwing on a disguise and giving Thor the old, he went that away gag. <laughs> Thor and his men end up flailing around in a marshy bog, and Gretter's able to run away while they try to extricate themselves. Mm-hmm. Now, it's true he gives them the slip, but it's also becoming clear that even Gretter can't keep this up. He tells a friend that he'd rather avoid the men hunting for him and not have to fight them. When Thorir musters so many men, I make for safety. <laughs> yeah, no, Gretter's a realist. He mentioned earlier that he prefers not to fight more than four men at once, mm-hmm. which seems quite reasonable. Uh, I think he comes across as a fairly cagey and intelligent guy, not the kill em all type that he's so often portrayed as. Yeah, I mean, we focused on some of the criticisms of, of Gretcher's character in our first part, but it's true that he's often credited with being uh, a more complex figure than a first reading might suggest. Uh, Gunnar Carlson, for example, calls Gretcher an honorable man whom fortune deceives. 
while uh, Stefan Einerson calls him a valiant fighter and a savior type who cannot save himself, which is quite uh, accurate, I think. So there are a few people who read him as a more sinned against than sinning. Well, it's I'm a, glad to have the support. It's a bit of a but blend. But let's, let's uh, dig back into the saga because Greta's about to face another of his many monster foes. Mm-hmm. And for those of you who are keeping track of the parallels to certain Anglo-Saxon epic poems, this one is just ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Gretter versus the Trolls. I entered the black chasm where the plummeting rock face gaped with its cold spraying mouth at the maker of sword showers. The plunging current pressed hard at my breast in the troll woman's hall. The wife of the god of poets burdened my shoulders with her hate. Uh, <laughs> John, do you notice how sexual that that whole thing is? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's, you know, that argument's been made about other poems than this one. Of course, yeah. But that's pretty overtly it really is. sexual right there. Yeah. I'm not going to reread it, but uh, there you go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, so uh, once again, we're going to have to cover the action and save parallels for the saga brief that we're working on. Right. Now, I don't even think we need to point out the parallels this time. I know. I mean, anyone who's read Beowulf or seen a Beowulf movie, I'm sorry, or anyone who's even heard of Beowulf, they're going to be able to spot this one pretty right. clearly. So so the basics are that a farmer named Thorstein the White and his farmhand are killed on a farm in Sandhauer. Thorstein's wife Steinvor and the children still live at the farm, but reports are that the place is troll haunted, so no one wants to visit or to work at the farm. Mm-hmm. Gretter comes by on Christmas Eve and helps Steinvor and her daughter to cross the river so they can go to Mass. Then he heads back to the farm because he wants to see the troll for himself. Now, it's interesting that in this saga, these hauntings so often coincide with Christmas, isn't it? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. Uh, we'll be hosting a panel at Kalamazoo next May called New Voices in Saga Studies. And we've got a paper on the panel that's going to be on exactly that subject. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to that one. Now, I, I hope to see uh, some of you fans of Saga Thing in the audience there. Me too. Uh, now, yeah. I'm not sure what will be said in that paper, but I think there's a definite religious theme at work here. Right? Mm-hmm. Among other things, Thorstein and the farmhand are both killed at Christmas time, and they both stay home when everyone else goes off to church. So they're probably pagan or at least, you know, shirkers. Yeah, that's probably not a coincidence. There's a strong subtext in this whole saga about the unrest of the pagan dead in the newly Christianized North. Uh, we, we saw similar things in Erbiga's saga and in Eric the Red saga, I think. Uh, mm-hmm. But anyway, Gretir's saga is just a little bit more blatant about the connection than some of the others. But as we've said, the author of Gretir's saga has clearly read all the other sagas, and he's incorporating and expanding on a lot of their themes. Right. Now, and Gretir himself kind of sits in an uneasy middle ground between these two religions. Hmm. Right? He's an enemy to the pagan undead, but notice that he also doesn't go to church with Steinvor. Well, there, there are monsters to slay, and, and, and since they like to mm, come true. out when people are getting all religious, it makes yeah, sense. No, it's true, but I like the detail that when Steinvor tells the priest about this troll-like man who helped across the river, the priest says, oh, He might be there to bring about a remedy to your troubles. <laughs> we shall keep quiet about this. 
So <laughs> I like the voice. So he's warning her not to jinx it, right? Yeah, kind of, sort of. Um, I think this priest knows who Greta is, and he's encouraging her to keep his this presence a secret. Um, I think he's functioning like the good clergy in other outlaw stories, right, who operate as a kind of intermediary between the outlaw and the community. Mm-hmm. There are actually some interesting connections here to the story of Hereward the Wake, who's another outlaw. From no, the no, English- that's all. That's very, very interesting, John. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it actually is, but now it's not the time for digressions. I, I, we need to get to this troll but attack. Everyone should read about Harrowward the Wake. And what about Friar Tuck? I mean, these are great stories. Trolls. Trolls, John. Real, live, angry trolls. <sighs> All right. Be my guest. Okay. So, Gretir settles down in the farmhouse, and he's going to wait patiently through the night. Very familiar mm-hmm. story here. Um, at midnight, he hears a tremendous crashing noise, and a troll woman rushes into the room, armed with a trough and a big knife. Now, she and Gretir rush at each other and begin throwing one another about and smashing up the place, and everyone thought the place would fall down. Mm-hmm. She's too strong for Gretir, though, but he's also too quick for her, so neither of them can win. Again, the parallels are going to be pretty blatant here. Yes, they are. And eventually the troll woman tries to escape and drags Gretcher all the way down to a chasm right by a waterfall in the river. And that's where he stops her and they begin wrestling yet again. Finally, Gretcher manages to get his right arm free. He draws his sword and chops off the troll woman's right arm. Now, obviously she throws herself into the water at that point and escapes into a cave under the waterfall. Hmm. But as a left-handed gentleman... I'm interested in the detail of which arms are getting free and or chopped off here. That's what you're focused on, not the uh, the one-armed monster fleeing to an underwater cave? Well, we decided we're not dealing with the parallels right now. So, yeah, it's a strong second place for me. It's a good example of the sort of descriptive detail we get from the better saga writers, but I'm not sure I understand the logistics here. Gritter's right arm is free, but they're in a face-to-face wrestling clinch otherwise, right? Sure. It says uh, she was pressing him so tightly to her body that he could do nothing with his arms except clutch at her waist. And then I guess he gets his arm free. Well, then how is he cutting off her right arm? I mean, their bodies are both in the way, right? Well, maybe he just pushes off from her at the last second. Yeah, I don't I don't know. Well, it's not He's been bugging me for a while, so I thought I'd bother you with it. Well, bother someone else. I should probably ask our friend Josh about it. He's kind of the authority on medieval wrestling descriptions. That's actually true. You do that. Now, meanwhile, in the saga, Gretir spends several days recuperating from the fight, and and then he consults with that priest that you liked from before, the Friar Tuck fellow. Mm -hmm. The priest is skeptical about Gretir's story of the fight, so he accompanies Gretir to the edge of the waterfall and then agrees to keep an eye on one end of the rope lifeline while Gretir explores the cave. I I feel like we've been here before. Yes. It it seems like the saga author couldn't decide which version of this story he liked best, so he just included them all. Uh, but anyway, Gretir is going to be lurking around the cave now. Well, he doesn't get to explore very far because the cave is occupied and not by a one-armed troll woman. No, there's a giant down here instead. Mm-hmm. Gretir later calls this the troll woman's ugly lover. Now, the giant immediately attacks Gretir with a pike, but Gretir chops it in half. The giant then tries to grab a sword that's hanging on the cave wall. A sword on the cave wall? But Gretir's next swing disembowels the giant. Now, this is one of the nastier bits of battle description in this saga. The the giant's innards go gushing and slithering over the rocks and into the water. Uh, it's a little disturbing for me to read, frankly, given my recent experiences. Uh, <laughs> now, while Gretter carries on hacking the giant to death, the intestines and organs float out of the cave and back up to the surface of the water. When the priest sees these guts floating by the cave, he thinks Gretter's been killed and runs away. 
Yeah, this is uh, the second time now that this has happened to him. Mm-hmm. Gretchen's got to find better rope holders. It's true. Uh, or else just not bother, since he doesn't seem to have any trouble getting out of these situations without their help. Well, meanwhile, inside the cave, Gretchen finds the bones of two men, and then he packs them into a bag. Well, that's not all. The author also strongly hints that Gretter loots a treasure trove while he's down there. We don't know all the details, but we're told people assume that it was a great hoard. Mm. Does he pick up a sword with a nice uh, a hilt of a sword with time. nice carving on it? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> of course, uh, that's only going to make it harder for uh, Gretchen to climb up the rope, which mm-hmm. he has to do again all by himself since the priest has run off. But but he does eventually haul himself up the rope and goes and leaves the bag of bones outside the church before heading back to Steinvor's farm to get some much-needed rest. Right. Now, that's a revealing piece of information, I think. Uh, the mm-hmm. bones are almost certainly those of Thorstein the White and his farmhand, and Gretter's brought them back presumably so that they can receive a Christian burial. He leaves a rune stick with them explaining where they came from, along with a couple of verses describing the battle. Uh-huh. Uh, we don't get a lot of information about Gretter's religious beliefs, so this is an important moment. He may not be a churchgoer himself, but he does assume that the churchyard is the proper resting place for the dead. Right, and so to wrap up this section, Gretter spends a winter in Steinvor's farm, mm-hmm. uh, but Thorir's coalition soon learns where he is, and he has to start running again. Now, he's going to visit Goodman the Powerful, who advises him to try living on the island of Drangi, which is an inhospitable place uh, that can only be accessed by a ladder. It's a right. pretty cool right. place, actually. Yeah, it's a great idea. Uh, but now Gretter has become so afraid of the dark by this point that he can't bear the idea of being alone on an island, so he has to sneak back to his mother's farm to seek her advice. Oh, he's going to his mama to cry, is he? Oh, jeez. Well, outlaws need a strong female influence. Right? Again, think of Gisli's wife, Oud. Mm-hmm. Gretter is not married and doesn't have any female siblings or have any connection with his female siblings or acquaintances. His mother's really the primary woman in his life. And now, of course, that's maybe not entirely true. Maybe later mm-hmm. in the summer, Steinvor, the, the woman who Gretter has spent the winter with, she gives birth to a boy that she names Skeggy. Now, at first, everyone thinks that Skeggy's the son of Kjartan, who's the son of the priest. But later, this kid grows up to be huge and strong, and everyone realizes he's probably he's probably Gretter's son. And so the saga of Skeggy Gretison begins. Well, uh, no. Uh, Skeggy's going to die at 16, and <laughs> we're told there's no stories about him. That's a Sorry. bummer. Yeah, can't help you. Uh, so back to Gretter. Uh, this visit to his mom isn't all pleasure. Gretter learns about the death of his friends, Holmond and Thorstein Kugeson, and realizes that he's running out of allies and options. But meanwhile, in addition to Thorir of Garth's forces, there are other random outlaw hunters still wandering around. Mm-hmm. Uh, one day, Thorod Snorrison rides into the valley looking for an outlaw to kill. Any outlaw will do. Oh, this is so random. Do we have time for this? Oh, we'll do it quickly. And it's important sure. because this is going to result in Gretter okay. making a much-needed new ally. That's true. All right. So Thorod's a bit of a sad sack. And his dad, Snorri Gothi, my thingman, mm-hmm. has thrown him out of the house for being useless. And the price for getting to come home again is that Thorod has to kill an outlaw. He tries to go after a local shepherd who's a minor outlaw, but the woman of the house gives him a tongue lashing and shames him into going away. <laughs> This guy. I mean, obviously, he's going to go after Gret here, but why would you do this? Thorod is so hopeless. I mean, this is just a lot of work to go through to commit suicide. <laughs> well, the woman shames him into trying it. And he approaches Gretter aggressively enough, but 
Gretter's pretty clearly not impressed. And when Thorod finally works himself up to attacking, Gretter just parries his wildly swinging sword with a shield and doesn't even bother <laughs> to draw a weapon. Gretter just seems a little bemused by the whole thing. The text says, This went on for a while, and Gretter did not sustain any wounds. And then Gretter said, Let's put a stop to this game. You'll never take me on and win. And Thorod again struck as hard as he could. <laughs> I just love the image here. Gretter's just exasperated with this kid, but he almost doesn't want to discourage the lad. It's kind of let him have his go. Well, not at first, but eventually he gets bored, so he grabs Thorod and sits him down on the ground hard. Oh, what an image. He gives Thorod a little talking to about biting off more than he can chew. It's like picking up a toddler. Oh, it's great. Down. He cuffs Listen him on the me. head and he sends him home to his daddy. Uh, he also, and I want to point this out, says that he's not killing Thorod because he's afraid of angering Snorri Gothi. Well, Snorri's got his back, and Snorri's also a dangerous man to cross. So, but at the same time, Snorri's very sneaky. You don't want a sneaky man. Oh, for you. maybe, maybe he's sneaky, but he does know how to reward good behavior. Mm-hmm. When he hears about Thorod's little adventure, he smiles about it and pledges to be a better friend to Gretter if he can. Yeah. And Snorri is a powerful friend to have. And Gretter is going to need all the friends he can get. Excellent. Gretter and the Island of Drangi. The seamstress sitting at home. Short-sorted, she calls me. Maybe the boastful handmaiden of ball trunks is telling the truth. But a young man like me expect sprouts to grow in the groin forest. Get ready for action, splay-legged goddess. <laughs> so, like, uh, it's, <laughs> if, if the last one was kind of uh, somewhat sexual, that one... Oh, yeah. No, he's, he's in, done away with the subtext. It's all text now. <laughs> and there's good reason, which we'll get to. So, uh, as we said, Gretchen's been told to try setting up a household on the inaccessible island of Drangi, now, the problem is that he's afraid to be on Drangi by himself. Fortunately, he doesn't have to because his much younger brother, Ilugi, decides to come with mm-hmm. him to the island. Now, their mother's not happy about it and prophecies doom, but Greta reassures her and the brothers head off. I, I don't know how reassuring he actually is. He says something like, Do not weep, mother. If we get killed, we'll make sure that people say of you that you had sons and not daughters. Eh, well, you know... <laughs> That's sort of reassuring. I mean, at least he's <laughs> promising to die well. Well, you have to doubt that their oh, mother finds that particularly comforting. Poor Gretchen. That's sad to me. Just <laughs> he's promising they're going to die well, and then what happens? It's just I know. Sad. Well, they're going to get more company for the island because they pick up a vagrant on the way who agrees to be a kind of manservant for them. <laughs> uh, his name's Thorbjorn, but everyone calls him Glaum, which means something like clown or merrymaker. Right. Now, Glaum, and this should not be confused with Glom, the uh, the undead monster. Mm-hmm. Glaum is a trickster type, and apparently Gretter thinks he's hilarious. <laughs> uh, we don't really get a sense of why. We're just told that Gretter thinks he's highly amusing. <laughs> Maybe Gretter just has a really simple sense of humor. I have a feeling he does. I mean, it's hard to imagine Gretter finding anything at all funny, but I bet a, a guy mm-hmm. who stumbles and falls a lot would tickle right. his fancy. <laughs> yeah, Gretter's a pratfall guy. Yeah. Uh, so the three of them bribe a farmer to ferry them out to the island of Drangi, which turns out to be a great spot for them. 
Yeah, Drongi is a high-topped island with steep cliffsides plunging into the sea. Now, there's a system of ladders in place to make landing on the island a lot easier, but if those ladders are pulled up, it's essentially impossible to get onto the island, mm-hmm. especially if uh, a few men are throwing rocks or axes at your head while you try. <laughs> um, I don't know if you've ever looked at pictures of Drongi, but it's pretty remarkable yeah. looking. It is. We should put up a couple of pictures on the website or something so people can get a look at this thing. We'll do. Uh, Drongi was formed by a volcanic eruption about 750,000 years ago. You don't say. But it's it's essentially flat across the top. Hmm. And the author isn't exaggerating. The sides of the island are practically straight up and down. Yeah, so it's a great spot defensively, but uh, but it's got to be pretty exposed up there. It doesn't look too hospitable. Yeah, yeah. And it's off the northern coast of Iceland, so I imagine it's got to be brass monkey cold in the winter as well. <laughs> brass monkey? Uh, well, it's it's best <laughs> that the island's easily defended, though, because most of the locals aren't all that happy that Gretchen's moving into the neighborhood, and there's good reason why. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, the saga introduces a massive local cast of characters at this point. Uh, But we're just going to deal with them as they come up in the story. We won't hit you with them all at once. The most important local is a chieftain's brother named Thorbjorn Ongel, or Hook. Oh yeah, this guy. He's a real piece of work. I don't like him. Yes, he is. Uh, Thorbjorn Hook is a big, strong man who's missing an eye. He's, he actually lost an, yeah, I won't get into that. Uh, Yeah, Thorbjorn Hook is a big, strong man. People might want to know why he lost his eye. What happened to it? His stepmother actually threw a game piece at him because he was being a snot, and she accidentally <laughs> gouged out one of his eyes. Nice. At which point he beat her to death. Oh, nice. Right, so he's he's widely regarded as a troublemaker, and he's infamous for this incident where he killed his own stepmother. You know that that is pretty bad. And it's t- it's taken us a while to get there, but we have finally found our adversary uh, for Gretir. Not saying he's sort worthy, of. but he's he's an right. adversary. I mean, he, he's definitely meant to be intimidating, but Thorbjorn's almost like a villain out of a bad B-movie. Yeah. Uh, but for right now, the important point is that Thorbjorn and his brother Hjalti are two of about 20 stakeholders who share ownership of Drangi and use it as a sheepfold. So Gretar moving onto the island is going to make him a lot of powerful enemies very quickly. That's right. And they also go there to collect eggs. I think there's a lot of uh, birds right. laying eggs and nests in those uh, those cliffs. So it's a good mm-hmm. source of food. Um, now, of course, there isn't much they can do about it for now because Gretar's got the high ground and he's pulling up those ladders. True. Right. And he's going to take advantage of that by claiming all the sheep on the island as his. <laughs> so when some farmers come to collect their sheep in the fall... Gretter pulls up the ladder and shouts down that he intended to keep everything on the island for himself. Now, is this the uh, possession is nine-tenths of the law argument? Yeah, and there's a little bit of a nya 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 in there as well. <laughs> uh, as you're fond of pointing out, Gretter's not really a nice guy most of the time. No. And we're getting a taste here of why people don't generally seem to like him much. Well, I mean, there's not much anyone can do about it right away. And and Gretir settles in very comfortably on the island. It's just a shame that he treats everyone this way. Mm-hmm. Now, they, they manage through the winter, but in the spring, Gretir decides to collect some supplies while everyone's busy at the local assembly. So he leaves Ilugi and Glom on the island, sneaks onto land, and steals what he needs. So far, so good. That's right. Uh, and if he just went back to the island right now, there would be no problem. But... Gretter's bored, and it's understandable why he would be. And so mm-hmm. he's feeling the need for a little social interaction. So he dresses himself in some shoddy clothes and walks into the assembly in disguise. Um, so this would be the assembly full of men whose sheep and island he's more or less stolen. No, not more or less. He's actually stolen them, yeah. <laughs> yeah, this should end He's going to well. go hang out with them. Uh, this is the point in the saga where I've got adrenaline junkies scrawled in the margin of my book. It just seems like Gretter can't stand things being quiet for long. 
He's the kind of guy who's going to throw rocks at the hornet's nest because he's bored. Well, I mean, at first everything is fine and no one notices him. But uh, Thorbjorn hooks pushing people into participating in wrestling contests. But no one wants to wrestle a giant pair of brothers, both named Thord. So Hook sees this big stranger sitting in the crowd and tries to force him into the ring. Now, Grettir, who gives his name as Guest, agrees to wrestle, but only if he's guaranteed safe conduct by everyone present, which is pretty sad. Oh, yeah. And there's a bizarre moment here. Uh, there's a man named Hoff who constructs an elaborate oath binding everyone present to Guest's safe conduct. Uh, this oath is ridiculously overblown. I think we're meant to think of it as ridiculously overblown. And it goes on for quite a while. Here, I'll just read a single sentence of it. This is one sentence. Any man shall be a truce breaker who breaks this truce or violates this pledge, banished and cast out from God and good men, from heaven and from all holy men, unfit for the company of men, and in all places driven out like an outlaw wherever truce breakers drift, or Christian men attend church, or heathen men sacrifice in their temples. Where flame burns, earth grows, an infant calls to its mother, and a mother bears a son. Where man kindles fire, a ship sails, shields glint, the sun shines, snow settles, a lap skis, a fir tree grows. The eagle flies for the whole spring day with a firm wind beneath both wings. The firmament arches, the world is settled, and the wind carries water to the sea or slaves so grain a lap skis it's <laughs> <laughs> oh, a pretty thorough oath isn't it yeah there's not a lot of wiggle room there <laughs> uh, I, I recognize that the oath is insane but it creates an interesting snapshot of people trying to negotiate the problem of oath making in the years after the conversion to christianity mm-hmm. hoff's balancing the two cultures carefully here right the oath is valid wherever Christian men attend church or heathen men sacrifice in their temples. Yeah. Right, there's a lot of tension about the validity of laws and oaths in a religiously divided Iceland, which we can track by paying attention to little clues like this. Sure, and I think we now know the origin of the uh, the holy hand grenade uh, in, in Monty <laughs> Python. It's very, very much... Five is right out! <laughs> anyway, oh my God. Uh, of course, as soon as everyone finishes approving of what a fine oath that is and all agree to it, Gretchen then reveals himself. And now, now suddenly everyone can't believe what a fool half is to have made such an airtight oath. And they all begin debating whether they'll actually keep to their promise, which I think they should. Well, I mean, they really don't like Gretchen, but this is a tough spot. Yeah, I mean, Gretcher then mocks them while they debate uh, until... Of course he does. Yeah. Of course he does. Like I said, throwing rocks at the hornet's nest. Yeah, but after a while, Thorbjorn Hook's brother, the chieftain Hjalti, uh, speaks up and announces his intention to hold to the oath. And after that, everyone else falls into line, although they're all very annoyed at half still for not only making such a binding oath, but taking so long to do it. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and Hook's not too happy about this at all. No, uh, he seems to take it as a personal insult that Gretir has infiltrated the gathering. Mm-hmm. But while uh, while Hook's stewing, Gretir takes on the Thord brothers in the wrestling match. He beats them one at a time and then wrestles them both at once in a long match that ends in a draw. And everyone's very entertained by this match. And Gretir then goes back to the island safely. Uh, but as you said, Hook's really angry now and he starts putting the word out that he's willing to kill Gretir if the other stakeholders of the island will pay him to do it. Yeah, but instead, most of the owners just sell him their shares on the on the island for the for a cheap price. 
Hook is left owning most of the island for a bargain price, but he hasn't figured out a way to get Gretter off it yet. Ah, but he has a cunning plan. Now, is this a cunning plan in the Blackadder sense of a damn stupid idea, or is it the good kind? Oh, no, no, it's completely stupid. That's why I said it like that. <laughs> he rows out to the island. Right. And she- so you were doing a Blackadder impression. I was. He, he runs, he, uh, he rows out to the island and shouts up to Gretter, Hey, uh, Gretter, could, could you do me a favor and leave my island? <laughs> That's it. <laughs> That's the entire plan. He's truly a wily adversary. <laughs> well, Gretcher then laughs at him, which isn't surprising at all. And, and when he learns that Hook now owns most of the land, well, he's more determined to stay than ever. Right. Now, Gretter's response is summed up by the line, It's true, I found it tough having the whole of Skagafjord against me. But now that I know this, I'll stop at nothing, because neither of us is smothered in popularity. I, I'm not sure what Hook thought would happen, but... He's forced to return to the mainland in defeat. And that's pretty much where things are left for a good long while. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gretter, Ilugi, and Glaum spend two years on the island and eat most of the flock of sheep that have been kept there, while Hook sits on the mainland racking his brains for another cunning plan. <laughs> but then one day, Glaum lets the fire go out. Right, and that's important for a number of reasons. I mean, as we mentioned, it probably gets pretty cold up on that flat top of the island. But there's also mm-hmm. the problem of Gretter's fear of the dark, which is only getting worse as he gets older. He doesn't say this to others, but he's near panic at the very thought of being stuck on this island with no light in the evenings. Well, not to mention that they've got to cook their mutton meals somehow. True. And since they don't have a boat on the island, Gretter's going to have to swim across to the mainland to get hot coals to restart the fire. Now, we've seen this once before. Uh, you might remember that last time Gretter had a swim for some hot coals... He ended up accidentally burning down a house full of men and killing the sons of Thor of Garth. Well, you know, this isn't going to go quite so badly. Gretir makes the <laughs> four-mile swim, but he's exhausted when he reached land. So he finds a farm with a warm room and falls asleep with his clothes for a blanket. In the morning, farmer's daughter and her servant enter the room, and, and they find Gretir passed out, but the clothes have slipped off him. Yeah, it's always awkward finding a naked outlaw in your living room. <laughs> it's very awkward. And it's going to get more awkward because the servant woman can't resist commenting on Gretcher's exposed manhood. And let's just say she's not impressed. <laughs> Upon my word, Gretcher as Munderson is there, lying naked. He looks big enough, all right, but I'm astonished to see how poorly endowed he is between the legs. It's not in proportion to the rest of him. Well, well, the water's very cold in the north. <laughs> yeah. But the... Uh, it's chilly day. Now, the farmer's daughter is understandably scandalized by her friend. Why can't you ever keep your mouth shut? You're no ordinary idiot. You keep quiet. I can't keep quiet about that, sister. I'd never have believed it if anyone had told me. Ouch. <laughs> well, it just gets worse. The servant keeps sneaking over for peeks at Gretir and then starts roaring with laughter. And it, oh it turns God. out that Gretir's actually awake this whole time and he's hearing everything that she's saying. So he's presuming there, he's presumably just lying there listening to them talk about his penis, cringing with shame. Well, well, he would be if Gretir ever felt anything like shame. <laughs> Uh, but instead, he grabs the servant woman when she returns to him and speaks two verses. Uh, the one that started this section, and then this one. The wench takes things too lightly. Few invokers of spear storms have much choice about the sword that adorns their hair forest. 
I bet my bollocks are twice the size that other spear thrusters boast, even if their shafts can outstretch mine. Mm. It uh, it occurs to me we probably should have stuck a warning on the beginning of this episode. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is about as sexually explicit as the sagas get, and what mm-hmm. happens next is pretty ambiguous, uh, although I think the poem suggests something of it. We're told that the servant woman shouts out, but then she and Gretir are together for a time, and and when she left Gretir, she did not taunt him again. Right. So the question is whether we're meant to read this as a sexual assault or as a consensual casual encounter. Uh, it's hard to resolve it with what the saga gives us, but mm-hmm. that implies that she doesn't have much choice about what's about to happen. Um Anyway, certainly no one else on the farm seems disturbed by what happens, and the farmer gives Gretir a lift back to the island afterwards, so... Uh, Well, sure, but that just extends the question as to whether the people of this farm would resent mistreatment of a low-ranking woman of the household. And whether they'd be willing to get in Gretir's face about it, even if they did. Right. Unsurprisingly, there's been a bit of discussion about this, and a lot of scholars seem to read this either as ambiguous or as a consensual act. Uh, for example, uh, Jenny Jawkins suggests that the statement that the servant woman did not taunt Gretter again is a wink to the reader that she's satisfied with Gretter's sexual prowess. Mm. Uh, but there are those who read this as rape, and it's hard to say definitively that they're wrong. Well, uh, an interesting comparison might be the Reeves tale, where you know one could suggest that there's a, uh, mm-hmm. some sexual assault going on there, but but all the women at the end of that story are quite happy with uh, what's happened to them. Um, Anyway, it creates a certain unsettling balance in this saga. Remember, Gretir started his career by stopping a group of berserks who were planning on raping the women of Thorfinn Carson's farm. True, but ultimately we're not given enough information to decide this issue, I think. So scholars on both sides are really working from inference. Mm-hmm. So uh, let's get back to the story if we can. Uh, Gretir makes his way safely back to the island, but his brother Ilugi is now convinced that Gretir's pushing his luck too far, having seen him leave too many times now. Right. And meanwhile, Thorbjorn Hook is finally ready to start moving against Gretir. It's time to talk about the death of Gretir as Munderson. I managed to guard my life against the holders of spears. It was not seldom that I needed such faith when hemmed in. Now that tough hag land of stones has wrought a spell on the tree that sheds flaming battle swords. Fierce is the force of magic. Well, I thought we'd never get here. I thought we'd get here a lot faster than we have, actually. I, I forgot <laughs> that was six months ago. The saga is. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> Uh, so Hook is going to start working against Gretir in earnest now. Yeah, and in true saga fashion, he's going to start hostilities by sending a total incompetent to assassinate Gretir. Well, it's sort of like firing a warning shot across the bows. Well, okay, true. The incompetent in question this time is named Haring. Uh, he's an expert climber, so Thorbjorn Hook encourages him to try scaling Drangi and attacking Gretir with the element of surprise. Haring's also a Norwegian, which Uh-oh. in this context means he's got the life expectancy of a toilet paper umbrella. <laughs> well, the plan starts well. Uh, Haring is able to scale the cliffs of Drangi, and he manages to sneak up on Gretir and Ilugi, who are distracted by Hook's boat. Mm-hmm. But Ilugi happens to spot him at the last minute and says to Gretir, There's a man coming toward us wielding an axe, and he looks rather hostile. <laughs> Isn't that kind of redundant? 
Maybe, but, you know, hostile and threatening aren't the same thing. Mm. Uh, when Alugi runs at him, Herring panics and leaps off the cliffs, uh, dashing himself to bits on the rocks <laughs> below. So it's really not done going well. That might actually be a record for incompetence. <laughs> I don't know. Remember Narfi's attempt to scare uh, Cormac with the sausage? No, that's a very good point. <laughs> Although, you know, to be fair there, Narfi didn't jump off cliffs in fear, so... Right. <laughs> So, uh, so Hook's plan obviously fails here, and another winter passes with Gretir and company in control of the island. And this is a significant winter. Uh, we haven't been counting them, but it turns out that this begins the 20th year of Gretir's outlawry. Oh, we should have baked a cake. Well, no, it's important. Right? Mainly because Scofty the Law Speaker has promised to try to get Gretir's outlawry overturned when Gretir reaches 20 years under outlawry. Why? I mean, it it's almost seems as if there's an unspoken upper limit to even major outlawry here. Mm-hmm. I mean, Gretter's just the first and only outlaw ever to survive long enough for it to become a possibility. Well, it's true that the author of Gisli's saga wrote that Gisli was the longest surviving outlaw in Iceland's history, with the exception of Gretter Asmundersen. Right, and that's an interesting point, because Gisli's saga is written at least a century before Gretter's saga. Right, yeah, no, Gretter's clearly a legendary figure in oral stories long before he's written into a saga. Well, yeah, that may be, but there's some bad news for Gretir, and for you too. Oh, oh, yeah, I know, I know. Skopti the Law Speaker, your thingman dies in the winter, and Snorri Gothi, your other thingman, also dies in the spring. Two of my finest thingmen, they died too young, damn it! <laughs> I think they did all right. And with them, Gretir's hope of escaping outlawry dies too, uh, since they're pretty much re- re- representing the power base that could push back against Gretir's enemies. Now, Gretir's friends still try to get his outlawry voided, and the new law speaker, Stein Thorgerson, is sympathetic to their arguments. Stein, by the way, is the son-in-law of Thord Bellower. So my thingmen aren't out of this saga yet. This author's really determined to get every single big name he can think of into the saga. Yes, he is. Uh, unfortunately, Thor of Garth, who's still angry about that whole Gretter killing his sons thing. We can get <laughs> over that. Uh, Thor throws his weight around at the all thing and gets the case rejected on a technicality. Oh. But Stein oh. promises to consider the matter again. And so now the pressure's really on Thor and Thorbjorn Hook if they want Gretter to pay for what they perceive as his crimes. There's a kind of time limit being imposed now. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So so Thorbjorn is going to look for new ways to deal with the Gretir problem. So he turns to his old foster mother, a woman named Thurid, who is, well, I guess she's like a witch out of a fairy tale. Yeah. She's still secretly practicing pagan sacrifice, which isn't actually illegal at this point in Iceland, even though the country's technically converted to Christianity. Yeah, for a while after the conversion, it's only a punishable crime to practice paganism openly. What you do on your own turf, or in your own turf house, is your own business. So clever. (laughs) Very true, but it's pretty clear that the author is against this. He calls what she does black magic, and secret arts, and trickery. It's very specific word choices here. Right, well, I mean, we're clearly not meant to admire her commitment to keeping up the venerable traditions and folkways of her society. (laughs) Wouldn't you? I mean, if you have an evil witch foster mother, wouldn't you go to her first for help? I mean, why mess about with this Norwegian cliff climber? <laughs> no Crazy. idea. Uh, maybe they feel like they didn't have enough of a Norwegian body count in this episode. Uh, <laughs> but I also suspect that Thorbjorn Hook might not be the sharpest knife in the drawer. Hmm. Uh, at least he knows enough to follow Thurid's advice. So he rows out to Drangi a third time, but this time Thurid's hidden on the boat. Ooh. And while Gretter shouts insults down at Hook, 
Thuridge shouts back a curse at Gretir. I curse you, Gretir, to be deprived of all favor, all endowments and fortune, all defense and wisdom. Now, well, first of all, he's already deprived of all of that. But Well, uh, yes. It, it does upset Gretir quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Now, we've said before that he's kind of halfway between Christian and pagan, and he definitely believes in the power of witches. But he also believes in the power of large rocks thrown by strong men. So he pitches a rock at Hook's boat that hits Thurid in the leg, and it breaks her thigh bone. <laughs> yeah, um, Good aim. Ilugi chastises his big brother for throwing the rock, but Gretter's just sorry he didn't kill her. Yeah. And meanwhile, Hook is shocked that anyone could throw a stone that far, and he and Thurid hastily return to the mainland, where Thurid spends a month in bed while her leg heals. And by the time she's healed, the rumors have gotten around the region that Gretter's made a fool of Hook once again, and everyone's mm-hmm. really letting Hook have it. He looks like a, a complete idiot. And so the former shareholders of Drangi start asking Hook either to give them back their claims on the island, or maybe to do something useful about Gretter for once. Yeah, now, Hook's a terrible person, and we're obviously meant to hate this guy, but it's kind of hard at this point not to feel at least a little pity for the man. Mm-hmm. He's being abused on all sides, he's got an impossible problem on his hands, and everyone in the district seems to be enjoying his discomfort. And I'm sure Thur is not the easiest bedridden house guest in the world either. Well, you know, at least she's got a plan for dealing with Gretir. Once she's able to walk again, she casts a curse on an old tree stump. That is cunning. <laughs> Presumably that stump will learn a harsh lesson about crossing her. No, no, no. Uh, she has the stump then thrown into the sea, and further spells will ensure that this stump is going to float out to Drangi. Oh, okay. So this actually does make sense. I mean, you know, if you accept that you can curse a tree stump. We've mentioned before that a lot of Icelanders were largely dependent on driftwood for building materials and firewood. And after almost three years on the island, Gretter's running out of resources. So a big hunk of potential firewood is sure to be a tempting bit of flotsam. And it ought to be. But uh, Gretter's got a talent for spotting traps like this, and he senses the curse on the stump. And so he throws it back out to sea. But the next day it floats back, this time right near their ladder, and since their servant Glom's in charge of collecting firewood that day, he does grab the stump and brings it back. This is a fairly convoluted plan, uh, but I do like the detail of the stump sort of sneaking back onto shore after Greta rejects it. Yeah, but Gretir's annoyed with Glom whining about his work, so he swings an axe at the stump without inspecting it first, and the axe bounces off the stump, hits Greta in the right leg, and makes a very deep wound. Now, now that's unpleasant, but Gretter's been wounded before, and badly. Ilugi dresses the wound, and for three days it seems to be healing well, as usual. But on the fourth night, Gretter has a bad dream, and when he wakes up, the wound has turned black and swollen and painful. And Gretter now knows that this is Thurid's curse at work, and he composes a kind of death song verse in which he relates a number of his fights that aren't actually covered in this saga. My god, there's more? Oh, yes. I understand why the author didn't include them in detail. I mean, this thing's got to end sometime. And Gretzer concludes his poem with the verse that began this section, which concludes, Now that tough hag, land of stones, has wrought a spell on the tree that sheds flaming battle swords. Fierce is the force of magic. Now, Gretzer might be composing his own eulogy, but he's not planning on giving up without a fight. He orders Glaum to stand guard at the ladders while Elugi plays nursemaid to Gretter. But for two weeks, the wound continues to get worse, and Glaum, meanwhile, complains incessantly about having to stand guard in the cold weather. 
Now, the narrative action shifts back and forth from the island to the mainland repeatedly. It's really nicely constructed to maximize the tension. Mm-hmm. While Gretter struggles to overcome through its curse, she then pushes Hook to hurry and make use of the advantage that she's given him. But he's having trouble gathering men because Gretter's assessment was right. Most people in the area hate both Gretter and Hook equally, and they're not willing to lift a finger to help him. It's not entirely surprising, but it does mean there's a real race going on here. Gritter's injury might not be fatal, and Hook can't risk having him recover and come for revenge. Uh, Hook's eventually able to cobble together a band of 18 men and borrow a larger boat, but even then, the men helping him aren't happy about it, and more than one of them grumbles about the use of sorcery. Understandably so. I mean, this is the 11th century, after all, and Christian men aren't supposed to be involved in that sort of thing. Right. So this, this band of unhappy warriors sails out to the island, And there's more mystical help at this point involving Thurid controlling the tides, by the way. So morale's not going to be very high with uh, this mostly Christian group. No. Uh, But when they get to the island, they discover something strange. The ladder that allows access to the top of the cliffs hasn't been pulled up. They don't know why, but they're not about to question their good fortune. And when they scramble up the ladder, they find Glaum, the guard, fast asleep. Oh, Glaum. Now, that's kind (laughs) of interesting. I mean, I think we've talked about this before, but people in the sagas often get sleepy in the presence of magic or at moments of fate. But I'm not sure that that's what's happening here. I think that this is just part of Glaum being lazy. Right. (laughs) It does seem that way. I mean, the author's been setting up his growing discontentedness and his unreliability for a while. Remember, he's the one who let the fire go out a while back. Mm -hmm. Well, he's going to pay for it now. Mm -hmm. Thorbjorn, Hook, and his men beat Glaum into a bloody mess, and then they leave him lying there. It's totally gratuitous and overblown, but it's clear that they're outraged on Gretter's behalf by Glaum's poor conduct, which is kind of a strange view for them to take. Well, I mean, this is one of those moments, I think, when social class provides its own kind of dividing line. Right? They may be there to kill Gretter, but they hate the idea of him being saddled with a lazy servant. <laughs> okay. Well, speaking of the killing, let's get to that. Mm-hmm. Gretir and Elugi are alone in their hut, but when Hook's men try to rush the door... Ilugi is able to hold them off by chopping at any weapon or any body part that comes through the doorway. It's a classic defensive tactic, and on this island, the attackers don't have any materials they'd need to burn the house down, which is the pretty usual way of getting around the problem. Mm -hmm. So instead, they begin tearing off the roof of the hut. Now, of course, that's not going to be easy, because by now, Gretter's got a spear in his hand, and he's stabbing away randomly the thatch. He manages to kill one man, but the roof is eventually torn away, and the attackers just pour into the hut. Ilugi and Gretir are fighting very hard, but they're outnumbered 17 to 2, and Gretir's barely able to stand. He manages to chop another man in half with his short sword, but, but then Hook stabs him in the back with a spear, and Gretir's down. And Gretir calls out, Bears the back of a brotherless man. Which is either a rebuke to Ilugi or a call for his help. Ilugi throws a shield over Gretter's back and stands guard over him. Everyone's impressed. Remember, Ilugi's only a teenager. Uh, but they cover him with their shields and drag him down to the ground. The attackers all think that Gretter's dead by now because he's bled white from all his wounds. But when Hook tries to take the famous short sword away, it's still so tight in Gretter's grasp that they have to chop off his hand to get the sword away from him. Hook then uses Gretter's own sword to hack away at Gretter's head striking so roughly that he badly notches the sword blade before Gretter's head is finally severed from his body.
And that's it. That That's the end of Greta Esmundersen. Mm-hmm. Not a glorious battle. In the end, uh, like we saw with Gisli Sersen, uh, who got his glorious battle, Greta does not. I think that's actually part of the point the author's making. Greta's life and death come after the glory days of Icelandic heroes. His tragedy is to be a great man in a time that has no patience for great men. And it's a small man who ultimately brings him down. Yeah, I suppose there's something to that. I mean, Robert Cook says that Although there can be no doubt that there was a real Grettir Asmundersen who was born around the year 1000, Grettir seems more a figure from mythology than a realistic Icelander of the 11th century. Well, one of the common opinions about this saga is that it's overwhelmingly a pessimistic, fatalistic text. And sometimes that's at odds with the larger-than-life aspects of Grettir's personality. Einarsson, who we talked about earlier, makes a good point about this. He compares Grettir to Njal Thorgerson of Njal's saga, but says that while both men are bedeviled by fate, the difference between them is that Njal fights fate, but Gretter drifts. Mm, not exactly a glowing eulogy. Didn't you like Gretter before? I do, and I'm not saying that I agree with Anderson, but I do think there's a tragedy to Gretter's death that's partly about the anticlimactic nature of the way he goes. C.S. Lewis once wrote that a danger of democracies is that they don't necessarily want great men. And that's especially true of the kind of great men who ignore social conventions and are generally unpleasant to be around. In the end, Greta's a larger-than-life man torn down by weak people whose motivations are small and dirty. Now, I'm still more inclined to read Greta as an ambiguous figure. Now, I don't know that we're supposed to be in his corner necessarily, though I think there is a, uh, a comment on society and justice here. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's significant that the author goes out of his way to point out that Gretter and Hook are both villains by their contemporary standards. That's a but good this point. is getting into things that we'll undoubtedly be covering in the judgment sections. Fair enough, fair enough. For for now, we need to wrap this thing up, okay? Mm-hmm. Hook is going to try to get Alugi to agree to swear not to seek revenge, uh, but Alugi instead swears that if he's allowed to live, he'll kill Hook the first chance he gets. So Hook has him beheaded, and the two brothers oh. are buried together on the island. But Hook keeps Gretter's head and his sword. Now, the men with Hook are really impressed with Alugi, and they aren't at all happy with Hook, so it's not a happy party that heads back to the mainland. Uh, oh, and they take Glaum with them, but he complains so much that they kill him to shut him up as soon as they reach land. <laughs> not exactly a great loss to the community. No. <laughs> uh, Hook rides with a band of 20 men to the farm of Asdis, Gretter and Alugi's mother, to bring the news of their death and to show her Gretter's head. He's that kind of a jerk. Mm-hmm. He enters the farmhouse and offers mocking praise of Gretter in a verse, to which Astis replies with a verse of her own. No less than sheep fleeing a wolf, you would have jumped into the sea, you man of golden sow's droppings, laughing stock of the north, had the battle tree stood upright on the island, had Gretter the warbringer been sound, I make light of your praise. Now, she was already regarded as an impressive woman, but that's pretty badass. It is. I mean, me- meanwhile, her grandson, Ospak, learns from the men who rode with Hook about Elugi's brave defense of his brother and Gretter's firm grip on his sword, even in death. And as the stories of what happened on Drangi get around, public opinion starts to turn against Hook. You know, just as an aside, Ospak's one of those strange cases. We mentioned before that this is the same guy who's the villain in Bandamanasaga. Mm -hmm. There he comes across as a conniving and violent crook, but in this saga, he's a dutiful member of a powerful family. Exactly. 
And and that family is getting stronger. Some marriages mm-hmm. and alliances are going on behind the scenes that help build support for Gretchen's family. And Hook is about to be in some pretty big trouble for this killing. Yeah, but this is where we start to see just how tone-deaf Hook is. He insists on taking Gretter's head to the all-thing in the summer. He's, uh, he's had it stored in salt to keep it fresh. And his allies, even his allies, are saying, Don't bring the head. You're in enough trouble already. And finally, halfway to the all-thing, Hook gives in and buries the head in a random hill for safekeeping. But he still goes to the all-thing and argues that he should receive the reward Thor of Garth promised for Gretter's head. And we see the political acumen of Gretter's family at this point. They spread the stories of what Hook did on the island, and with their allies, they're able to turn the occasion into a referendum on Hook's conduct. Right, and that's not going to go well for Hook, because even his friends don't like what he did. Exactly. Instead of getting the reward, Hook gets outlawed for using sorcery and for unnecessarily hacking at Gretter's body. And because of Hook's case, it is also made law that anyone who uses black magic from this point forward will also be outlawed. So, by the time the all-thing is over, Thorbjorn Hook realizes that he needs to flee Iceland at once to avoid being hunted down by Gretter's family, and he starts planning his escape. Meanwhile, the family has Gretter and Alugi's bodies moved to the mainland and buried in a churchyard. And so, that is where we're going to leave things. But, unbelievably, that is not the end of our story. Right. <laughs> there, are, there are nine more chapters of epilogue to wrap this story up. Yeah, um, this final section is often dealt with separately by critics, so much so that it's got its own name. It's called the Spacerthater. So we'll return one last time for a shorter episode dealing with the Coda de Gretter's saga. But for now, we'd like to thank you for listening and for getting involved online. There's There's been a great conversation going on on Facebook, for example, about the nature of Gretter's short sword. And it's been so much fun, in fact, that I've decided to write a paper on the subject. Hmm. Uh, a special thanks to Adam Parsons and Tiffany Townsend for their contributions to that. I don't think I'd be thinking about this paper seriously without their help. And uh, you too can join us on Facebook or Twitter to let us know what you think about this episode uh, or about Gretter or the sagas in general. Yes, uh, in fact, we, we just got a comment from uh, Andrew O'Brien about our Vatensdal episode. Oh, yeah, what's that? Okay, so he said that he just binged through uh, all the Vatensdal episodes and he really enjoyed them, uh, but he wanted to lodge a complaint, and this is what he says. <laughs> oh? He says that we're totally wrong about the nicknames. Okay. Not only did Thorolf Sledgehammer never actually use a sledgehammer, but evil killer cats are like the furthest thing from a sledgehammer. It would be like <laughs> if there was a gangster named Machine Gun Nicky. And if you ask the other gangsters, they'd be like, him? Oh, man, stay away from Machine Gun Nicky. He likes to poison people. <laughs> it's rather a brilliant analogy, really. It is. It's pretty good. Uh, so he, he uh, preferred uh, Thordis Pride of the Farm as the uh, the nickname there, which I think well, is, is a reasonable a complaint. It's a good name. Yeah. Uh, well, you can also get in touch with us to let us know what we got wrong through email at sagathingpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, or on Twitter, or on Facebook, or by putting a note in a bottle, tossing it in the ocean, and waiting a few decades. <laughs> uh, and if you're so inclined, we're always grateful to those of you who have reviewed us on iTunes. Every review helps us to get a wider audience. Thank you so much for that, and we will be back soon with the epilogue to Gretchen's Song. Bye for now. It's your cue. The moment's arrived. It's all about timing.